This program is released under a Creative Commons license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. This is Christ the Center, episode 38. Join us today as we speak with John Fesco about the Reformed Doctrine of Justification. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey. Today I'm joined by Nick Batzig, who is interim pastor at Christ the King PCA in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. And Dr. John Fesco, who is pastor at Geneva OPC in Woodstock, Georgia. He's also the author of a new book on justification titled Justification, Understanding the Classic Reform Doctrine, published by Presbyterian and Reform Publishers. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Camden. We are very interested and excited to speak about this new book. Uh, it's, uh, it's received a lot of attention, the, the topic of justification lately, given the various uh, challenges that the church is facing. But first, we wanted to stop and pause for any new publications and uh, discuss what uh, has just been released. Jeff, have you seen anything lately? Uh, there are there are several things uh, that have just been released, I think, from Reformed Academic Press which is the uh, printing uh, ministry connected with uh, Ligon Duncan. Uh, let me uh, call those up. There's the, I believe his book on Moses and the law in government is uh, now available. Uh, yeah, Mo- Moses' Law for Modern Government, uh, the Westminster Assembly Guide to a Basic Bibliography, uh, Scottish Theology, uh, we already mentioned the guide to the writings of Herman Bovink, right? The, yeah. 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 That, that's actually by reformed heritage books. That's Joel Bakey's, uh, publishing house. Uh, then there's the Westminster confession preparation and printing, which is a, a classic work by uh, S W Carruthers. I think that's again, a reformed academic press title, uh, that, so we have several of those that are now available. Uh, and of course you can, uh, Purchased those uh, through the uh, Westminster Seminary Bookstore. Uh, also, uh, I didn't mention it, but it is out now, and that is Saved by Grace, the uh, the the volume on the Holy Spirit's work in calling and regeneration by Herman Bovink. Again, that's a that's a, a Reformed Heritage uh, book publication. Mm. Uh, and then going to items that are. Uh, brand new that are forthcoming. Uh, some interesting titles out there. Uh, one again is the everyday work of the Westminster Assembly uh, that's slated for release sometime this month. And again, that's also by S. W. Carruthers. Uh, John, you might be able to help with this. Does that go back to the late 19th century or early 20th century? <clears throat> yeah, I believe it goes back to the late uh, late 19th century. Right. That was that connected with. Um, I, think I was trying to remember. Uh, okay, it, the, he was he was over in Great Britain, so it, I was right. thinking there there was a celebration in the Southern Presbyterian Church, but that's a different thing altogether, I guess. Uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah. Again, uh, we want to remind our readers about the forthcoming volume, uh, first volume in that series of reformed. Uh, classic reform texts, I believe it's called, that R. Scott Clark is editing. 
Oh, yeah. The, the uh, sketch of the Christian uh, catechism by William Ames. Uh, that, again, uh, looks to be a promising series and, and a related volume. I don't know that it's in the same series, but that's the Jim Dennison uh, three-volume set on Reformed Confessions, uh, which have not been available, I guess, up till now in English. Uh, again, that's another Reformed Heritage uh, book. Uh, we want to keep our eyes open for. They're, they're coming out with a lot of good stuff, aren't they? They they are they are busy, uh, busy, busy folk. Uh, um, we go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say um, the other books that would be of interest. Um, there's two more of the uh, the What Is series that uh, PNR has been producing. Right. What is Biblical Preaching by Eric Alexander and, and What is Spiritual Warfare by Stan Gale? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of churches carry those in their front lobby or, or in their, at their book table or bookshelf, as the case may be. And you want to keep those in mind. Uh, and we don't want to forget our good friend R. Scott Clark's uh, book, Recovering the Reformed Confession, which is due out next month. I'm really looking forward to that. Well, yeah. What I've read of the... Draft is excellent, just excellent. There is a book that Don Kistler uh, has uh, produced and called "Feed My Sheep: A Passionate Plea for Preaching." Mm. Uh, that that would be uh, good. Don was, of course, the powerhouse behind the founding of Soli Deo Gloria, and he has a new uh, publishing arm now, uh, Northampton Press, if I remember correctly. Uh, but here's a book that that I am excited to see, and it's called "The Incarnation." In the Gospels, this is a part of the Reformed Expositors Commentary series, but this is taking a unique approach, uh, and, and it's topical rather than uh, by book. Okay, it's called Incarnation in the Gospels, and, and it's got material by Dan Doriani, Phil Riken, and Rick Rick Phillips. Hmm. Huh. And so it's part of that series, but it's topical rather rather than than by than a, a commentary of a particular book. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. And that, that and there are going to be several others. I've been told there are going to be several others like that 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 add to the the already solid material that's been included in those uh, volumes. Let's see. Is there? Oh, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. The Reformed Confessions of the 16th and 17th Centuries in English translation. Uh, the first volume will be coming out, but there will be three volumes altogether when that's uh, completed. Yeah, I'd like to mention as well George Marsden's new uh, biography of Jonathan Edwards, which oh, yes. is apparently uh, a completely, well, maybe not completely, but it's not simply an abridgment of his previous biography. Um, that's available at Westminster as well for uh, only eleven dollars. I mean, that's a great yeah. It's, it's a relatively short book. Uh, related to that, of course, is uh, Stephen Lawson's book coming out in November, "The Unwavering Resolve of Jonathan Edwards." Hmm. Uh, and then Fran- is that from Reformation it, Trust? Uh, uh, yes, it yes it is. It's part of that series of books that uh, Doctor Lawson has been involved, like with. the Expository Genius of John Calvin. That's correct. Okay. Same series, same okay. series of books. He's he's going to do quite a few of those, I guess. Uh, and then there's another book. There's a new book on Francis Schaeffer due out through Erdman's called Francis Schaeffer and the Shaping of Evangelical America. Hmm. Uh, so that looks interesting. Uh, anyways, I think that that's it for me. And I don't know if any, any of the other guys have things they want to 
uh, mention? Well, I think we should mention um, John's book, Last Things First, even though it's oh, yes. you know, a year old, just about. Correct. But fabulous little work on biblical theology, unlocking Genesis with the Christ of eschatology. And yes. I mean, our listeners would really benefit from reading this book. Ab- and absolutely. I, I hope that John's not offended if I say this, but it's sort of like a, a, a more brief... And yet, a further development of Beale's work on the temple, sort of, it's that same, that yeah. same kind of idea of the garden, tabernacle, temple. Right. I was thinking, eschatology. yeah, a combination of Beale and Klein. Kingdom Prologue. Yeah, much yeah. More, uh, uh, more readable, if I may yes. put it that way. Uh, and that's a compliment, John, by the way. Uh, you don't have, you don't have enough hyphenated words. Yeah, yeah. No. That's, 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 a, um, that, that's a, an important thing to be able to uh, explain uh, what are complex truths in an understandable way. So that, yes. that's definitely a benefit, in my opinion. That, that is a nice little book that I'm always happy to, uh, to share with others. And, and, of course, you know, folks, that John contributed a chapter to the Gaffin Festrip yes. on the his, history of biblical theology, uh, which was quite good. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say that, kind word. <laughs> yeah. that little book is so important because it deals with some of what's in the justification volume about the covenant of works and oh, yes. the Sabbath and the trees of life, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that seems just so important nowadays. So really recommend that book. Mm-hmm. Seeming that uh, our book section has come to a close, we would like to begin talking about this book on justification. Now, John, there have been several uh, books lately uh, dealing either with the new perspective on Paul or the federal vision controversies um, and, and also between differences in various reformed camps between, you know, a union with Christ model and, and other, other type models. What were your goals in writing and publishing this book? And, and what do you hope uh, people would take away from it? That's a, yeah. I, I, what I was hoping to accomplish, and we'll, you know, time will tell as to whether or not it's, uh, it's been successful or not, is trying to give um, readers a good resource that would uh, perhaps combine uh, or distill a lot of the information that's out there as well as uh, to put <clears throat> key subjects uh, all together in one place. I think that uh, a number of helpful works, uh, perhaps aimed at a more uh, for popular consumption, would be like R.C. Sproul's books on justification and, and John Piper's books, which are very helpful, I think, and important. But uh, for the most part, they, they focus uh, largely upon the uh, order salutis or the order salvation. And um, what I was also hoping to do is is to integrate not only a discussion of the uh, Ordo Salutis, but also to place that in the context of uh, redemptive history or, you know, the uh, Historia Salutis. So uh, <clears throat> hopefully that that's what I was trying to accomplish, as well as uh, one of the things that I also noticed, I think, in a lot of the literature, which I'm sure you have as well, is that uh, there is perhaps a huge divide you sometimes often find theological works on the subject, and then often other times you find uh, work coming from New Testament studies on the subject as well. Uh, but uh, I don't know, maybe uh, my wife's always getting on me for using uh, corny illustrations, but I wanted to uh, mix uh, the chocolate with the peanut butter and come up with one great taste, if you will. <laughs> And, uh, you know, to nice. get that all together. A tertian uh, quid. And, 
<laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, but I know that in one sense, sometimes it'll probably frustrate New Testament scholars, but on the other hand, it might frustrate systematicians. Uh, I mean, hopefully not, but uh, the idea would be to put that all together in, in one uh, volume so that, uh, you know, readers would be able to uh, find it uh, all in one place and then from there fan out into the rest of the literature. So hopefully that's, that's, that's the idea, at least in general. Hmm. Well, give, given given the conversations we've had on this program uh, with uh, Lane Keister in particular about the unity of the theological encyclopedia, what you're doing, of course, uh, your goal is uh, absolutely commendable from our perspective, at least from my perspective. Uh, it's, what, it's what you ought to be doing. So uh, that's good. So, yeah, so, ha- I, I, so ha- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that you're right. I, I do think that, uh, unfortunately, the, the you know theology has become very fragmented, and that's not to say that we shouldn't have a field of specialization and specific study of disciplines, but at the same time, it, it seems that uh, hardly the two intersect in terms of you're either in New Testament or in systematics, or you know, and that, that the two never cross each other's paths. So hopefully, that that that's one of the benefits of you know the approach that I'm. I'm trying to bring anyway so we'll see right now um you you include you have several chapters here 15 different chapters um just a a brief overview you've got one on church history justification and prolegomena the covenant of works the work of christ then you get to one on the new perspective on paul we've spoken uh, uh here and there about it throughout this program um Maybe briefly, could you just give us a main critique and and why, uh, on, on a high level perhaps, why the Reformed doctrine of predestination is not the doctrine that we find in the New Perspective? Sure. I think that uh, with, you know, obviously the, the New Perspective on Paul is the general idea that uh, the literature of Second Temple Judaism gives us a new uh, vista uh, to understand uh, Paul's writings as well as even more broadly the writings of the New Testament. And I think that a number of scholars from that perspective would say that uh, this, uh, you know, this new uh, window, if you will, uh, helps us to understand what Paul was saying as well as it, it I don't know, it gives a supposedly historical definition for many of the terms and concepts that Paul is using. But uh, one of the things, uh, and obviously, so then there's a redefinition of righteousness, a redefinition of uh, justification, a redefinition of um, of ecclesiology and, and many of those interconnected doctrines. But at the same time, I think you're right in that there is uh, there's an absence of uh, the doctrine of election uh, or any discussion. It's funny in that in N.T. Wright's commentary on Romans and the New International um, a new interpreter's Bible. Uh, he basically, when he gets to Romans nine, he says, "Well, the typical explanations that one finds here, uh, in terms of the views of Augustine's uh, doctrine of predestination, have, have absolutely nothing to do with what Paul is discussing here." So he just kind of, with one hand, sweeps it aside, and then moves on to discuss, you know, what he thinks Paul is talking about. And uh, it is interesting how uh, I think it's a little-known fact. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it is better known than I'm aware of. But uh, N.T. Wright, in his early days, uh, published a book uh, with Banner of Truth, uh, along with uh, a couple of other authors, and it's called uh, "The Grace of God in the Gospel." Uh, and it's essentially, as one would expect from 
uh, from Banner of Truth, just a summar- summarization of uh, the basic, uh, you know, Reformed faith, at least the, the basic tenets of it. So at one point, uh, at least from the Banner of Truth book, he uh, was on board, so to speak, and since then uh, has significantly moved away from it. Um, this was back from 1971, and he published his uh, the historical uh, Paul of History or Paul of Faith, and I think it was 1978, I think, or 1979. So in that six or seven year period, he had some significant shifts, and one of them, I think, was obviously to scuttle at least the Reformed doctrine of predestination, which we'd say, of course, is the biblical doctrine. Now we stand firm, uh, you know, with the Reformed doctrine. Uh, you know, that we are justified by grace through faith based on the, the works, the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. But what has the Reformed uh, world, or how has the Reformed world developed the doctrine of justification further uh, over the last 500 years or so? Um, have there been developments? Uh, have they been good? Have they been bad? I mean, what's, what, how are we different from, from 500 years ago? Yeah, that's um, that's a, an important uh, question. In that, I think that uh, as you know, given the historical context of the Reformation, issues were largely focused upon uh, the order of salvation, or how how is the individual sinner justified. That's not to say, I think that uh, that there's a validity to the new perspective critique that. Reformation was only interested in the individual, uh, as uh, uh, is evidenced by you know the creeds and confessions of of the 16th century that uh, individuals were part of uh, corporate communities or corporate confessional bodies, uh, churches. Uh, but I think that at least, let's say, a negative development uh, in um, the present day would be something to the effect that that individualism perhaps has uh, picked up uh, a greater emphasis uh, so that uh, it, perhaps the individual is uh, isolated from the rest of the church and doctrine of justification is simply becomes uh, my salvation uh, in God's sight and I need not worry about any connection with the body of Christ or the church. Uh, but that would I think that would be a general trend, and I'm not so certain that I've necessarily seen that in print anywhere. Uh, but on the other hand, I think some positive developments, perhaps refinements, have come from obviously uh, the likes of uh, Gerhardus Voss, Herman Ritterboss, or uh, even uh, Dick Gaffin uh, with his uh, dissertation uh, on restor- the centrality of the resurrection, or as it's later titled, uh, Resurrection and Redemption, where he, he's coordinating or making a concerted effort to coordinate uh, the Ordo Salutis with uh, the Historia Salutis, in particular how uh, it relates, uh, justification relates to eschatology and redemptive history. Those things, I think, are inherent in the Reformation views. Um, one of the things uh, that uh, Daphne Hampson notes in her book on Luther, comparing Luther, Lutheran and Roman Catholic soteriologies, is that for Luther, there was a decidedly uh, eschatological cast to his doctrine of justification in comparison with Roman Catholic views, because Protestants saw justification as being definitive, 
and, a, and if you will, you know, it secured the verdict definitively uh, for the one who was justified. Where that was not the case with, uh, <clears throat> nor is it still the case with the Roman Catholic Church. And so, however latent that might have been in the uh, 16th century, whether in Luther and Calvin or other Reformed theologians, I think that that has been accentuated uh, and uh, and exploited positively. I think. Like uh, not only by those that I've mentioned, but uh, Greg Beale, I think, would be another one that I'd throw in there. He has a little essay uh, on uh, biblical theology as new creation, where he addresses some of those points as it relates to justification. So those, mm-hmm. those I think, would be the positive and negatives. I see. I don't know about what you guys think, but you know, perhaps you've seen some other things that I'm, I haven't noticed. Um, John, uh, yeah. way way back when I had. Uh, I guess it was Doctrine of the Holy Spirit with Sinclair Ferguson at Westminster Seminary. Oh, more than more than ten years ago now, he had a uh, a chart a chart that sh- that compared Luther's uh, understanding of, or placement of justification, comparing it, I think, to uh, several medieval scholars. Mm. Uh, this this might have been actually uh, the chart might have been put together by Heiko Obermann. Or or David Steinmetz, one of one of the uh, well, we would call them heroes of uh, of uh, the recovery of a, a a true understanding of the Reformation and how it relates to the Middle Ages. But this 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 gets to your point that uh, the Luther's understanding of of justification is eschatological because the end time judgment comes forward into history. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. and so that that judgment, that justification, uh, uh, happens uh, in time rather than being reserved for the end of the ages. It's uh, it happens at the point in which the the person trusts in Christ, uh, and, and that, of course, is very different from what you, as you've already said, what you would see in. Um, Middle Ages Roman Catholic soteriology. That chart might be in in uh, and, and this is off the top of my head. That chart might be in the book on the harvest of medieval theology. Huh. Okay. If that's the case, of course, it's Heiko Obermann uh, right. who wrote it. Uh, it could also be in the forerunners of the Reformation. But anyways, that, that so that that actually confirms your point. Uh, right. How would you? Uh, unpack the the notion and and this of course is something that Gaffin has uh, Dr. Gaffin has uh, discussed at length but what is the connection between the historia salutis or the history of salvation and the ordo salutis or the uh, order of the application of salvation uh, in in what respect in terms of um... well in terms of just well and specifically mm-hmm. it does the ordo uh, ought the ordo, our understanding of the ordo, I mean, uh, reflect the historia? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think it does. Uh, and, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I know that uh, I'm not I'm not an expert <laughs> on uh, on Gaffin's uh, writings, but I think it does in that, uh, and maybe this is what you're getting at in that. Say, for example, as you've said, with justification, it's not a verdict that we await uh, for on the last day, but rather it's a, it's a verdict that's uh, declared in the present. Um, I think with uh, sanctification, for example, that 
you can look at it perhaps in terms of the already of glorification uh, versus the not yet of uh, cons- a consummated uh, glorification perhaps, uh, but in the sense that uh, I think it's a phrase that Voss uses in Grace and Glory where he says that this Holy Spirit is the heir of the new creation or of the new age that uh, believers uh, must constantly breathe uh, as they are uh, further conform to the uh, image of the last Adam or something to that effect. I, I think, is, is that the type of thing that you're getting at there? Yeah, no, no, that, 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 uh, that was, that's, that's fine. That's, a, that's mm-hmm. a good, good response. Okay. John, I wanted to ask you um, about the first and last Adam and about reading. Um, I want to put this carefully about understanding the work of Christ um, by going back to what Adam what position Adam was in in the garden with relationship to the two trees, with relationship to the Sabbath day. I know, I think it's Mark Horn or Rich Lusk, one of the Federal Vision guys, say that Adam would have maturated. He would have matured and that he was always eating of the tree of life. And there seems, in redefinitions of justification from the Federal Vision camp, there seems, that really seems to be the linchpin that they they basically have a, a much different view than you set out and a lot of other reform men do about Adam in relationship to the two trees, to the Sabbath, to what we believe to be the covenant of works. Could you, could you talk about that some, explain that carefully for our listeners? Oh, sure. The way that I like to explain this, and this is not a phrase that I've developed, but I think uh, perhaps uh, there's a there's a book uh, by a gentleman by the name of uh, Stephen Dempster, Dominion and Dynasty, and there's a little phrase somewhere in that book where he says that, uh, that the narrative of the scriptures, I think, can be uh, distilled to the concept of the probation of God's sons, the probation of God's sons. In that uh, Adam, uh, Luke identifies uh, Adam uh, as God's son in Luke 3.38 uh, in the genealogy of Christ. I think also with a combination of uh, the concepts of uh, sonship and image bearing that we see, for example, in uh, Genesis uh, 5.1 in, in Adam's genealogy. Uh, that you know that Adam bears God's image would also, I think, implicitly confirm his identity as God's son. Uh, but he's also the first uh, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, as well, uh, in that his duties there in the garden uh, are not agricultural, but primarily uh, priestly, as well as we see his kingly duties uh, in in the garden, as well as he's given dominion uh, over the heavens, uh, or over the over the earth. Uh, as well as his prophetic duty, uh, in the sense that he was he had his one line scripture that he was supposed to preach faithfully uh, to his his, uh, his 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 family. Don't eat of the tree, uh, and uh, we have to be uh, about the work of the dominion mandate. Um, so you see that there, and I think that what uh, Adam had in the garden certainly was he had righteousness. But it was an untested righteousness. So herein comes the probation or comes the testing. And that it was Adam through his obedience that he was going to secure or was supposed to secure uh, that eternal rest of the, uh, of the Sabbath. I really like what Voss has to say. He says in this regard that 
the Sabbath principle is simply the covenant of works, uh, or the Sabbath principle embodies the covenant of works, and that if on the Sabbath he was to rest, then that implies the other days of the week he was supposed to work, uh, so that with each um, passing Sabbath, as he would rest at the end of the week uh, after his labors, it would he would get a foretaste of that eternal rest to come that he would secure upon the completion of his labors and or the success his successful probation. But as we all know, um, you know all too painfully that Adam failed that that test. And so we see in subsequent redemptive history, every other uh, significant representative has also failed, whether it's Noah, who falls in the vineyard in a very similar manner that's evocative of Adam's fall in the garden, uh, or whether it's Abraham, uh, who's deceitful, or whether it's David with his... um, his uh, his own uh, adultery and deception and and uh, murder plots, uh, you know, or even for example, Israel itself, Israel, who according to Exodus four twenty two is called God's firstborn son, and is placed in the promised land, a garden like environment, and is given very similar types of commands and sanctions that Adam received in the garden. But nevertheless, Adam, I'm sorry, nevertheless, Israel was cast into exile death. Uh, I think is the way that Ezekiel uh, characterizes Israel's death, in that if if uh, you know, I, I tell, I'd like to tell my students that, um, as well as my congregation, that uh, Adam did die on the day in which uh, he ate of the tree. Everybody, I think, looks at that and think, well, there was a stay of execution there uh, because Adam didn't die until some 900-odd years later. But if we look at the Bible, that to dwell in the presence of the Lord is life itself, and to be cut off and to be exiled from the presence of God is akin to death, then Adam was exiled, as was Israel. Uh, God's son was exiled from uh, the promised land uh, for their failure uh, to be obedient. But all of this the last Adam, uh, that God the Father definitively declares, this is my son, and, and you know my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, or this is the only begotten of the Father. So that, again, here I think we see the culmination in the baptism of Christ, where uh, here is Adam, he emerges from the water as Israel emerged from the Red Sea. And as uh, Deuteronomy 32.11 says that the Holy Spirit, or that God descended upon Israel like a bird hovering uh, over uh, over Israel. So now the Holy Spirit descends upon uh, Christ, and just like Israel, leaves Christ into the wilderness. But the big difference is... Mm-hmm is that Christ is obedient. Uh, and here we see that theme of the testing and the probation of God's Son. And so then it's this, it's this representative disobedience of the first Adam and the representative obedience of the last Adam that is imputed uh, to those who are in either Adam or the last Adam, those who are in Adam or Christ, which I think is why you see Paul bringing up that, that the two-Adam two structure of, uh, of redemptive history there in Romans 5 or in 1 Corinthians 15. So all of that feeds into the doctrine of justification, uh, that we're declared righteous or in conformity to the law or obedient, however you want to say that, we're declared righteous on the ground of the rep 
relative obedience of that last atom. Uh, that's, I think, in, in a nutshell, hopefully, uh, the, the ideas, I think, that are foundational to a right understanding of justification by faith alone. Mm. And Jeff, just going back, when you mentioned uh, the Historia Salutis, the importance of the fact that that representative, the Eschatos Adam, the last Adam, having been raised, well, first he became a curse for us, Mm -hmm. but then having been raised, his resurrection was his justification. Yes. That that that's a kind of what I was getting at exactly. with earlier question, John. Can you okay. speak to okay. Can you speak to that to some degree? Yes, I, I think that this is something that I hope I think is I believe it's it's grounded. Uh, it's a point that I make that's grounded in the uh, in the tradition, but it's just it's not as it's not highlighted as much uh, in the earlier days. But it's only uh, until recently I think with say Voss, for example, that. Uh, maybe others have said it, but I know Voss has said it very forcefully uh, in the Pauline eschatology, and I think that this is a huge contrast with, say, Roman Catholic views, or especially the uh, the new perspective on Paul, which has a very similar soteriology to the Roman Catholic Church, is that, um, as, as you were just saying, that, you know, Christ's justification uh, is his resurrection, you know, 1 Timothy 3.16 or very similarly, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And it's the idea, I think people, that doesn't sit well with people because we so much associate justification with the justification of sinners. Mm -hmm. So how can we say this of Christ, who we know is sinless? Well, if we just remember that to be justified or to be condemned, that's simply a, a, a legal pronouncement. Uh, so in that sense, we can say that Christ is justified or he's declared righteous, uh, but we would say he's declared righteous, or the Father declares him righteous because of his um, obedience, uh, you know, say Philippians 2, 5 through 11, obedience unto death, even death on the cross. And then that declaration is not a verbal declaration so much as it is made manifest in Christ's resurrection. Uh, you know, if, if the wages of sin is death, well, then Christ is condemned to die, uh, to suffer the consequences of the broken covenant of works, as well as the, the sin of uh, the people of God. But also then he's raised and he's uh, declared righteous. And that's why death has no bound or no, no bonds upon him, has no hold upon him. And in that sense, I think that's where we really see the intersection of Christology, uh, pneumatology, uh, soteriology, and eschatology, because here's the, as you said, the eschatos Adam, the last Adam, uh, so hence the eschatological Adam, uh, who is raised by the power of the eschatological spirit, but he is also the Christ, uh, the God-man, so hence the, you know, the Christology here, uh, and that this is the foundation for uh, our soteriology as it's again applied by the Holy Spirit. So I think it's with the resurrection of Christ in particular that you really see these different doctrinal uh, loci converging together uh, at the, the event of the uh, resurrection so that you have Christology, pneumatology, 
eschatology and soteriology all uh, kind of converging on this one event with Christ as, you know, the, the God-man, uh, so obviously Christology, and if he is the last Adam or the eschatos Adam, then he is also the eschatological Christ. Not only that, but the resurrection is an eschatological event, something that was to occur in the last days, but also Christ is raised by the, the, the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, which that's pneumatology. And then, of course, we also see that um, it's uh, the work of Christ through the Spirit that is also the foundation, or is uh, our soteriology, as it's a, as the Spirit applies it to uh, to man uh, in in his redemption. So here we see all of these different loci converging on this one point, which I think is is captured, uh, you know, powerfully by Paul there in Romans 4:25, where he's Christ is handed over for our transgressions, but he's raised uh, for our justification, so that. I think many in the broader evangelical church uh, look uh, at the crucified Christ for their justification, but they don't always look at the resurrected and ascended Christ uh, for their justification as well and, and see the, how that, it's, for lack of a better description, it's a package deal. Mm. That's excellent. John. I was going to ask you just briefly about um, future justification. I know there's a lot of debate about this in the church and even among those, you know, we would consider orthodox and confessional. Some okay. would say there is an already not yet justification, the not yet being an open declaration. I think our confession, basically, they take the language, um, an open declaration before, you know, the watching world, before all the nations gathered before Christ's throne. Others would would even take it further that are not in the federal vision camp, and then some are not even comfortable saying there's a not yet to justification, but that because you're justified once and for all, you're just forever perfectly righteous in Christ, and there's no need for a not yet aspect. Mm-hmm. What, um, where do you fall on that, and what thoughts do you have? Yeah, I think that... Um in one sense, at least, there's a broader historical point to note uh, in that uh, I think that it's, I want to say it's difficult, if not perhaps impossible, maybe with Jim Dennison's works that you mentioned earlier in the, in the, broad, in the podcast that, uh, that maybe somebody will find an instance of this, but I don't think you find the Reformed Confessions, the Historic Reformed Confessions, talking about a second or a future justification because that was essentially the, the language of the Roman Catholic Church, or certainly the Council of Trent. So there was certainly an, eff, an effort or desire to distance uh, their own statements from those of the Roman Catholic Church. And so hence, I think there in its, uh, is it Shorter Catechism 38, that uh, believers will be openly acknowledged and acquitted, uh, which they could have used the language of justified, but I think they instead chose different language to place some distance between them. Now, that's the historical issue, but then, of course, asking that same question or that's, you know, addressing that issue dogmatically, uh, it seems that there are a number of different expressions that one could use to, to, to uh, express that, but, uh, and as you've mentioned, some, of, some say, well, there's a future aspect or there's um, a not yet of, of justification. And the way I like to unpack it, and I do this uh, in uh, chapter I have to look at the uh, the actual chapter here in chapter 12 of the book is that I say that um, that justification 
is eschatological so that the, in the present we are uh, irreversibly and indefectibly uh, you know, declared righteous. And that, uh, to borrow that language from the smaller catechism, shorter catechism, uh, is that um, we're openly acknowledged and acquitted through the resurrection. Uh, through the resurrection, in that I, I often I I haven't seen this in a whole lot. You do see it in Voss, and you see it in several others. Uh, surprisingly enough, N.T. Wright even picks up uh, the, some of the significance of the resurrection in his uh, volume three on uh, resurrection and the Son of God. But I don't think that he uh, fully coordinates the significance of the resurrection with justification, as Paul so you know, uh, carefully or, you know, closely links the two in, in Romans 4.25 in that, um, uh, you know, it's like I, I tell tell my, my church or my students that uh, without God uttering a single syllable uh, on the last day, uh, that the, the, the people of God will look around and see the body of Christ immediately transformed and glorified and off to the side they will see those who are not in Christ as not being glorified so that 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 immediate glorification and that resurrection unto life uh, will manifest immediately and without a single syllable being uttered the righteous status uh, of uh, you know the people of God versus uh, un- the unbelieving uh, you know the unbelieving world. Uh, I think that you do see this. There's a there's a distinction. It seems that that John talks about in John chapter five verses. Uh, I think it's uh, 28, 29, where Christ says um, there's a resurrection unto life uh, and a resurrection unto uh, death. Uh, so that it's not uh, the, I don't think it's the, the decree of election that, that Christ is talking about here so much as it is is inaugurated uh, eschatology. Uh, again, coordinating that with John 3.16, for those who do not believe are condemned already. Certainly that's not to, you know, to excise the doctrine of election from the, the, from the equation, but rather it's the outworking of that decree where uh, the uh, status of each group is uh, is already deci- been decided because of uh, the moving forward of the eschaton into the present with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, yeah. I, that's at least generally that that's the rough outline. Now, follow, following up on that, uh, your prior chapter, chapter eleven, speaks of justification uh-huh. and sanctification. Mm-hmm. Where would you fall on the relationship between those two doctrines uh, in the Ordo, or, you know, generally speaking, how would you relate sanctification and, and good works, etc., to justification? Sure. I think that, um, you know, Calvin says it well uh, by calling it the duplex gratio, or the twofold grace, uh, in that whenever we discuss uh, the doctor or the ordo salutis, it's it's important to remember that uh, it's primarily a, a logical uh, organization of the of the different elements of the ordo, not not so much a temporal uh, organization. There are some temporal elements to it. Obviously, uh, predestination is temporally before glorification. Uh, but for example, the you know the idea would be is that justification and sanctification are 
simultaneous benefits of uh, being in union with Christ. Uh, but at the same time, it's important to recognize that justification is legal or forensic, whereas sanctification is transformative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are two there's simultaneous benefits of, of, union, of union with Christ in that regard. So um, uh, I think that uh, I'd like the way that the Westminster Confession expresses is that, that you know that uh, the uh, the you know that the good works are the uh, are the fruit of a justifying faith uh, in that sense. And so um, uh, in, in, in chapter eleven, I talk about that so that what's going on there is. You know, I think that both Paul and James are affirming the same truth, justification by faith alone, but that in particular, James uh, is dealing with uh, antinomianism, those who claim that they're justified uh, and that uh, they have no need to manifest good works. Whereas in terms of relating James to the uh, Historia Salutis, something I don't know that I've seen too much, um, but uh, in relating James to the Historia Salutis, to say that a justified person does not produce good works is akin to saying that the eschatological spirit has not been outpoured uh, mm. upon the church and upon mm. Christ, or by Christ upon the church, mm. which is supposed to yield that fruitfulness, as Isaiah and forty uh, Isaiah forty four says, uh, or obviously you know there in Galatians five, and so I think that's unthinkable uh, for James, and I can't help but think that when he says, "As uh, the spirit, uh, or as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead as well," that he draws upon that uh, body-spirit analogy, I think, mm-hmm. harkens back not only to Genesis in the garden, which uh, with the creation of Adam, which a number of commentators cite, but also I think it's that same image uh, on a grander scale in Ezekiel with the Valley of the Dry Bones as the spirit uh, falls upon uh, that uh, reconstituted body, if you will, that it's uh, enlivened uh, and it's, uh, it's fruitful in that sense. Now, maybe to stir the pot just a little bit, <laughs> not to scare you, but um, we, we have a healthy debate uh, in reform circles between different, slightly different models of justification. This isn't to say that anyone's not reformed, um, sure. but uh, we, we, there have been several books uh, that have been published recently. Uh, we think a little bit back further to uh, Dr. Gaffin's By Faith, Not By Sight. We also think of the recent one by the faculty of Westminster Seminary, California, Covenant Justification and Pastoral Ministry. Ministry. Where would you personally uh, place your book in relation to those? What are you drawing on and what do you appreciate from the different sides, if we want to call them sides, and where do you mm-hmm. differ with each? Yeah, I think that um, I certainly appreciate, uh, for example, the emphasis that uh, uh, Dr. Gaffin places uh, on the importance of union with Christ. I think that that's an important, uh, obviously, uh, foundational uh, concept for soteriology that, uh, for whatever reason, is really, um, uh, I don't know, underemphasized or undervalued uh, in the broader in the broader tradition, at least in the contemporary period. Um, you know, you often find uh, statements on justification or what have you, and and. You know, you never find any type of statement on union with Christ. Uh, but um, I think that, at least in my own understanding of it, which 
Let's look. I can't remember from the table of contents. I forget what I, I, I myself write. Uh, in chapter 10, I address uh, justification and union with Christ, as well as I also deal with uh, the subject somewhat uh, in, uh, the, in chapter 2 on justification and prolegomena, uh, is the idea that... Um, you know, every element of the order of salvation uh, is connected with union with Christ. Uh, in Him, we were predestined before the foundation of the world, or chosen in the, before the foundation of the world. Or, um, you know, in Him, those who are in Christ, there is no longer condemnation. Uh, and so we, we see all of these elements that in Him or in Christ uh, uh, formulation connected with uh, every point of the Ordo Salutis. So in that sense, I, I really like, uh, I think it's larger catechism, uh, question 69, the justification, sanctification, or whatever manifests our union with Christ. Um, that phrase there, you know, that the Reformed tradition has always maintained, I think, that union with Christ undergirds the entirety of the Ordo Salutis. But where I, uh, what, where I side is I say that I think that it's the, uh, the, the uh, the uh, the forensic uh, aspect of our union with Christ that's uh, foundational in a logical sense, not any kind of temporal sense or mm-hmm. anything like that, uh, but is foundational for the transformative aspects of our union with Christ. Uh, so in that sense, I, I'm not. I think it, it, you have to talk about union with Christ, but I think it is legitimate to to distinguish the the legal and the transformative aspects. And I think you see that in Paul, in that Paul doesn't bring to the fore, uh, say, in the early chapters of Romans or in Galatians, the transformative aspect of our union with Christ, but rather he brings uh, that um, uh, that. Uh, legal uh, aspect of our union with Christ, uh, you know, to the, he brings that to bear in whether in Rome or in Galatia, uh, or in terms of what we were talking about earlier, uh, the representative obedience uh, of of the last Adam uh, is, is 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 key and foundational in that in that sense. Well, Jeff, did you have any other follow up or questions on that? I mean, that's very helpful for me. Yes, no, no, that was that was very good. Well, John, uh, yeah, uh, in the midst of all these discussions, can you give us uh, your assessment of the idea that union with Christ obliterates the necessity for any kind of doctrine of imputation of Christ's mm-hmm. act of obedience? Uh, right. I think uh, that you certainly see that. I think that what what often happens is that it's an interesting historical note. I remember digging this up a long time ago when I was doing um, my graduate research, is that um, Arminius sat at the feet of Beza, uh, but obviously Arminius didn't quite track <laughs> with, right. uh, with what Beza was teaching and right. kind of went off on his own. And so I do think you see, say, for example, in the Federal Vision, um, you have the likes of Rich Lusk, who says that uh, imputation in light of our union with Christ is uh, is superfluous or is a re- unneeded redundancy. Uh, and I think that he tries to cite Dick Gaffin in support of that. Mm-hmm. But Dick Gaffin obviously has been quite clear on that point, not only in uh, speaking engagements. I heard him at that uh, at the conference where, where he spoke uh, in parallel with N.T. Wright, but also in print that no uh, imputation, that representative obedience is absolutely essential uh, to, uh, you know, to the doctrine of justification. And so I think that 
I, I don't know. I'm not sure, to be honest with you, as to why they would obliterate that or why uh, Federal Vision types would uh, no longer see the need for that. Is that, again, to go back to that representative obedience, that's, it's, it's the obedience of Christ that secures uh, the, uh, I think, the eschatological nature, the indefectible nature of our justification. Uh, and in the end, maybe this is an overly simplistic answer, but Paul holds the two together. <laughs> uh, right. You know, he talks yeah. of imputation all over Romans 4 and 5, uh, but right. at the same time, he has no problem with saying that it's in Christ. Right. Uh, so... Um, is yeah, there I, the, the the I'm wondering because I know that in the history of say Pauline studies, uh, mm-hmm. there's there's been an assumption on the part of some scholars that union with Christ simply is transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and uh, you know who was it? Albert Schweitzer who said the justification was a subsidiary crater, and Correct. and and that participation. Uh, which we would we would simply describe as uh, a, a kind of transformation uh, mm-hmm. is is really what union with Christ is all about. And maybe some folk, uh, whether they've read that directly, they've come across that uh, or they've come up with that idea in their own reading. Uh, and so therefore, they think that union with Christ is, is therefore just uh, sanctification. OK, that, that's what we would call it. Right. Uh, and, and so or. Uh, that's one possibility, or they've simply no longer hold to the to the distinction between justification and sanctification. Mm-hmm. In other words, right, they, right. they've obliterated, they've gone back to say an Augustinian understanding, uh, where where we're just we're we're now justified by our sanctification. Correct. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. Any of all, any and all of the above could be explanations for why uh, someone like Lusk would think that imputation is uh, irrelevant now that we focus on union. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a, that's just a sad development uh, and not not particularly helpful. No, I, I think you couldn't be more correct in that. One of the things that I've noted, especially about uh, Federal Vision uh, advocates, uh, as well as even new perspective types as well, is that. Um, and I think N.T. Wright has admitted as much himself. He said that, uh, I think he said on Paul and Fresh Perspective, and it might be somewhere around page four, uh, 13 or 14, somewhere around there, he says uh, that he is all but ignorant uh, of, uh, you know, historic expressions uh, in the Reformed faith and in Protestant expressions, except for one or two Reformers, say Calvin or Melanchthon. Uh, and I even then want to say, uh, well, gee, I've never seen any quotes from Calvin or Melanchthon or any evidence that you've actually, uh, you know, interacted with them. In other words, a, there's a self-admitted ignorance of the history of the doctrine. I see that not only in Wright as well as in Dunn, uh, except maybe in Dunn occasional glancing uh, interaction with, uh, you know, historic formulations, but also in the Federal Vision. You just, there's no effort, there's no uh, attempt to interact with the history of the doctrine uh, to uh, understand what's gone on before and w- where we are now and what has been discussed and what formulations have been floated. Uh, I think it was um, 
I can't remember, and you guys probably know better than me, but it was either Murray or Machen, uh, maybe Machen, who said that before, or no, maybe it's Murray, anyway, uh, before you can contribute positive, positively to the expression and refinement of any doctrine, you first have to uh, expend a lot of energy in studying its history mm, to understand it. Yeah. Uh, uh, does, does, so, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, John. No, go no. Ahead. Go ahead. You, you, you go ahead. Uh, Carl Truman hasn't he? Didn't he uh, write an article some time ago, actually answering uh, James Dunn's uh, criticisms of Luther? Uh, yes, he did. M- making this very point that you haven't read, you know, you're criticizing the reformers, Luther in particular, for misunderstanding Paul, mm-hmm. and and yet. Uh, Dunn himself was was doing the same thing to Luther. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean yeah, it's it, a beautiful piece. It is, it is piece. ironic. Yeah. yeah, it is ironic, and not to mention the fact that m- most new perspective types uh, quote Christer Stendhal's argu- article as if it's gospel, and no one ever—I don't know if anybody ever takes note of this. I know some do, but that that was a lecture first delivered to the American Psychological Association. Yes, it was. Uh, so I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, are we doing good historical theology, or is this uh, is this dime store uh, psychoanalysis? Uh, and so, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> it's, well, it's, uh, we're about out of time. I really appreciate you coming on, yep. John. Uh, Nick had to leave us early, but this has been a great discussion, and we really hope that uh, listeners would give us their feedback. And we, if you like this sort of thing, please let us know because we we would like to develop uh, this conversation further and have many more guests on and further roundtables to to further talk about these great truths and these great doctrines. So thanks, John, for joining us. Thanks, yeah. thanks also for writing this book. We really appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to to talking to you in the future. Praise God, and thanks so much for having me. Oh, well, you're welcome, and thank you. Uh, We also want to point uh, our listeners back to the website. You can visit castlechurch.org, find all sorts of information there. Uh, You keep up to date with what's going on. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can visit the contact page on the website, or you can send us an email at christthecenter at castlechurch.org. If you would like to submit a book review, or maybe even a film movie review, or anything uh, for our forthcoming podcast, uh, we're going to, I think, call it the Reformed Media Review, or if you'd like to uh, prevent us from putting that out, <laughs> give us your <laughs> feedback. <laughs> uh, but we're looking for some contributions there, so if you have some uh, criticisms or uh, critical review of any uh, fairly recent book or uh, piece of media, please submit that, and we'll, we'll get in touch with you about recording something. But uh, we want to thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. Christ the Center.